This is Coder Radio, episode 342 for January 28th, 2019. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly take on the art and business of software development. Once again, Chris is away, but don't worry, he'll be back real soon. And in the meantime, I'm Wes, and I'm, of course, joined by our new resident rustation, Mr. Michael Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, Wes. Do you have any WD-40? I'm feeling rusty. Oh, you sure are. Unfortunately, I'm fresh out. You're on your own this week, Mike. But that's okay. That's a shame. It is a shame. But we've got lots of other great stuff to talk about. We've 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 had some good feedback from the audience. There's been some developments around patents and our favorite little language to discuss on this show, Swift. Interesting, interesting developments there. And it's time to check in with WebAssembly. A lot has happened from the days of ASMJS. What's it like in 2019? Where are we going? And why are we interested? But before we get all into that, how are you doing this week, Mike? I'm good. How are you, Noah? Oh, That's not your name. No, it's it not. What I did there. <laughs> I miss Noah, though. So. I know. I miss Noah, too. It's true. But that's okay. Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing great. We have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. You, kinda, you, you brought some new topics on me this morning. And actually, it had been something I'd want to talk about anyway. But before we get into any of that nonsense, let's talk a little bit about some other network news. That's the launch of Choose Linux. That's right. If you want to be cool like me and run elementary OS, well, then Choose Linux is a show for you. Uh, yeah, it that's is. Right. It is a beginner-oriented show for people. You know, maybe maybe you're Linux curious, right? You know, you've looked over at Linux, and maybe Linux look, Tux looked back at you, but you're not sure. Do you want to go say hi? That kind of thing. This is the show for you. It, it's no prior knowledge necessary. It's uh, Joe and the wonderful Jason, who's new to the network. Uh, Teach, telling us all about Jason's adventures in, shall we say, Linux education? Yeah, Linux, the open source world. You know, he'd been he'd been uh, writing a lot about other topics for a long time and then sort of made the switch to Linux, I don't know, six months or so ago. Uh, so yeah. a competent storyteller kind of presenting an interesting story that, you know, we, we've all been there. And when you're an experienced user, it can be hard to really reflect. So that's why I love that it's got Jason and Joe. Joe's got the curmudgeonly aspects, the, you know, doesn't quite take all the fun out of it, but but is there to provide some balanced perspective, some balanced perspective. And of course, Jason's just got a great energy. So you can find that choose linux.show. Uh, they've already got one great episode up. It's coming out every other week. Uh, the easiest thing you can do, of course, is just go to choose linux.show and subscribe. That's right. Speaking of that, you can, of course, go to coder.show and find all the episodes of this show and get your subscription. And even more importantly, you can find the ways to get in touch with the people making this here show, Jupiter Broadcasting, and provide feedback. We love feedback. And sounds like we got some good feedback or at least some interesting feedback last week, Mike. Yeah. When you mention Rust, people just kind of come out of the woodwork. It's, uh, it's interesting. We had a lot of feedback regarding rust but also jenkins um 
what was your general take on it? I mean, we had a few, we had a lot of feedback on the Jenkins stuff. Yes, we did. Um, you know, I think it was it was kind of all over the map, which I, I think is good. Uh, it sounds like we hit a nerve. A lot of people are using Jenkins and either love it or hate it, and and that kind of seems appropriate. And I hope we didn't come off as trying to. I didn't. I didn't want to disparage Jenkins. It's a valuable yeah. tool. I've certainly used it and been grateful that it exists. And it's a testament to the open source community. I think more. I just wanted to have a discussion around. Should Jenkins be where this stops? Can we do better in the world of continuous integrations and all the various roles that Jenkins has? And how do we take the story of Jenkins and reflect on what else we should do? Yeah, I mean, I think um, th- there's one comment in particular from uh, Browseria. I hope I'm saying that correctly. You made an honest try. That's all that counts. I, I, I mean, you know, it was really a good good faith. And he has a f- kind of a five, five points. But I think the the... Two that I found most interesting were, uh, it's on the subreddit. Number three, it's simpler. You know how to run Docker containers. You know how to point to your Git repo source control. If your Jenkins file is right, that's pretty much all you need to do. And and number five, which I think I particularly kind of discounted, was that it's a visual uh, visualization tool as well. Right? I, you, I was in particular talking about how you can do many of these things with bash scripts or, um, you know, various GitLab pipelines integrations, but I could definitely see in an enterprise setting where you have a maybe non-technical manager, having the visualization is going to be pretty powerful. Yeah, right. It can be it can be useful to have a nice big board that shows you where your test broken and where it's failing along that pipeline of complicated steps that, you know, that way you can find the right engineer to yell at and make go fix that problem. Ooh, ooh, well, maybe you don't want that. Never mind. Maybe you don't. Yeah, you got to think about that. Yeah, there is actually some really good feedback, and there are a lot of cost and benefit analysis. And there are times where maybe a, a small limited make file makes sense, and there are other times where a well-crafted Jenkins file. Really, if you can, if you get someone on the team that can that can craft that file and will, and is willing to be the subject matter expert, you know, uh, Browseria is totally right that like no one else is once it's set up, you're not going to really have to touch it. You just make new commits, new Docker files get generated. All the automation happens. So a lot of times it's somewhat of a one-time pain neglecting the other side of the whole maintenance story. Right, right. But anyway, that was our last episode, those 241. So if you want to go find out more about Jenkins, 341, sorry, thank you. Gosh, what am I doing selling us 100 episodes short? That's like almost two years of coder. Ooh, so much coder. I'm sure we would love more feedback about Jenkins, though. It's an interesting conversation. I'm sure we'll see more updates from the team behind Jenkins. It also seems like it seems like they kind of get it. You know, a lot of stuff has been happening yeah. over there. There is modernization, so it's on the move. Yeah. So speaking of things on the move, um, Rust, man. Can we just take a second and talk about the Rust feedback? Oh, yeah. Let's just take a moment for Rust. So just like the Jenkins feedback, there was too much to really sum it up into one paceman. But first off, I want to thank all the people who sent me blog posts, videos, um, a link to the Rust book extremely helpful that has kind of gotten me started a couple open source projects i didn't know about that i'm going to be investigating hopefully featuring on here in the next month or oh, two i was just about to ask if we were going to, yeah. get to hear about those all right a little, get to teaser. Hear about a little teaser it has been great i am happy to say i have successfully written a rust function i'm going to continue to use that word okay well you said written uh, uh did, does that mean you compiled it too written compiled and called it from ruby oh even executed that's the whole darn game caboodle wow executed it's it's kind and it does something with everybody's favorite star wars hero um and uh yeah alan wouldn't let me put it on the server something about linux academy has an anti-jar-jar policy 
Oh, see, that just seems like discrimination flat, flat out. Yeah, I mean, come on, Jar Jar is great. But seriously, I, I did in fact write a random uh, Jar Jar generator because that's what I do when I try something new. And I have to say, it took me maybe being conservative 35 to 40 minutes. And most of that was like setting up my environment because that's always, you know how that is, Wes. It's always just like, just a pain. Well, you're in a new you're in a new ecosystem, right? You had new norms right. and rules and customizations to do and get everything integrated with whatever editor you're using. Yeah, I ended up just using VS Code, but I'm told that's maybe not the best choice for this. So I'm eager to hear more about that. Um and just getting it to compile correctly to be called by Ruby. But once I did Oh, are you using one... like the uh C style FFI from Ruby to call I'm compile using FFI. That's, that, that's exactly what I'm doing. Yep, FFI. Fascinating. Oh, that's cool though. I mean, I would probably it seems more fun to pair Ruby and Rust than Ruby and C. Yeah, I, I'm finding it to be I like Ruby a lot, as we will talk about probably in almost every episode. But Ruby, we mentioned it last week. If there's a tortoise and a hare, maybe it's not the hare. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, yeah. that's pretty well diplomatically said there. Yeah. So yeah, it's great. I mean, I don't have a whole lot on Rust today, but I'm you know I'm a I'm like a little I'm a newbie at Rust, right? So I'm learning it. Um, but as I particularly play around with open source projects, I'm hoping to kind of bring them into the show, feature them. And uh, I know we Wes, we have a very very large and extremely passionate Rust following. <laughs> Yeah, so, and that seems like one of the things that stands out for me. I've only I've dabbled about as much as you have here, and I didn't even get into the FFI stuff. And while there might be, you know, there might be some learning curve. There's obviously a new way to, you know, a new memory model to, to kind of work with, and how you handle yeah. that, and all the different idioms of that community. But it seems like what makes people keep coming back is the community around it. So I'm going to be fascinated to watch as you interact more and more with the passionate people behind Rust. Indeed. Speaking of passionate patents, I mean, oh, people. Oh, geez. Oh, oh, what a game. Oh, oh, oh. So uh, I hear you're doing some Swift, Wes. Uh, isn't that true? Or Okay. No? Well, uh, I did actually, I did install it because I wanted to try this whole Swift I, on I, the I, server. I you know it was actually, it wasn't bad. I didn't do a whole bunch, basically uh, my equivalent of your uh, Hello World Jar Jar sort of thing. But it wasn't, it wasn't bad. And that's why I was kind of concerned or at least interested and needed to go follow up more because I'm new to the Swift world. As I'll, as I'll admit, yeah. it sounds like uh, Apple's been filing some patents related to Swift. Ooh, they have. But really quick, what uh, what server framework were you using? I'm just curious. Uh, I was just doing getting some basic stuff going. So I so okay. uh, which one did I use? Um, vapor. vapor. Yes, Vapor. Vapor. Yeah, Vapor is uh, one of the be- one of the better ones. But yeah, so uh, uh, maybe don't try to sue Apple. You did agree to that, Eula. I wasn't. I mean, yeah, I guess I wasn't. I wasn't planning to, at least not till next year. I mean, that's kind of a uh, you know a summer thing. Yeah. So uh, Apple is patenting lots of stuff in Swift. Wow. Basically, I, I don't even know where to start with this. Right? They're patenting optional chaining, which again, neither Wes nor I are attorneys, but doesn't that look like a thing that existed in like Lisp in the eighties, or am I just? Yeah, and I mean the yeah. L- the ML community has ex- has explored that for yeah. a long time. Uh, really, any really in research languages since the '90s. Yeah, I'm sure, or pro- probably even earlier, knowing how uh, the history of computer science goes. Yeah, right. So yeah. there's two patents in question, and people just sort of noticed, you know, r- people reviewing all the patents flowing through the system, and realizing not only one is this applying to Swift, but then two, you have the usual issues of well, how valid are software patents in general, and then the specifics of like 
what are you claiming here? Because the method, you know, like the, the actual implementation, the user facing stuff doesn't seem new at all. There's some arguments about, okay, well, there's, you know, there's multiple ways to implement optional chaining uh, in, in terms of like how you build the programming language underneath. So there's some arguments about maybe some of the stuff they're patenting applies to the particular way they chose to implement it in Swift. Still, still, you end up back at the whole like software patents just seem like such a steaming pile of garbage sometimes. Well, I yeah, I'm no fan of software patents, but I, I kind of didn't think you see again. I wish we one day we have to have an attorney on. I didn't think you could patent something that already existed prior to you using it. Oh, the other patent. Basically, I, I linked it. I'll link it in the show notes. Is basically apt. Like it's basically a, a package manager, right? And I mean, I think that hits on some of the problems with software patents is to have uh, to have effective patents that that don't infringe on previous existing ideas or really do promote novelty and you know the generation of new useful ideas, which is, is nominally the goal of the whole idea. You actually have to have good enforcement that can do meaningful review and determine like is this adding something it also sort of violates a lot of the trust you know there is now more and more open access journals there's more and more sort of research style development especially in a world where you're doing a lot of server-side stuff you, you just don't there's, there's a more open sharing because you need other stuff right like look at the machine learning community where a lot of algorithms get shared somewhat in the open because well that is part of the magic the other magic is these giant data sets the companies right. aren't sharing and so having patents just sort of feels like you get the information out there but it's also not in the free spirit of research well what's really interesting to me is i remember back in the day when apple was like all open standards yay we are built on bsd which was always kind of right they had that whole open source yeah. program where they you know dump code over the wall and now and Microsoft was like, we're going to sue you for using the fat file system. And now it's almost exactly the opposite, which I, I, I it, it's bizarre to me. But how do you, I mean, okay, so how do you reconcile that with at least the development of Swift, which we saw open sourced somewhat early, right? We got a whole bunch of like previous com Git commits from when it was still closed. Yeah. Uh, and then it is being developed fairly out and open, or at least that's what it seems like. Well, I think uh, Chris Latner, the uh, creator of Swift, who obviously used to work at Apple, and uh, Wes has that in the show notes for us, I, I think he makes a good point that in all likelihood, he comments on uh, Hacker News, this is just a way for Apple to screw patent trolls. Because when you're a big company like that, you get sued all the time because pe people know you'll settle instead of fight it. So what happens is if you sue them, it's and this is the standard Apache thing, right? If you get sued for patent infringement, well, anything you own that somebody's using that's Apache licensed, that license is immediately revoked. So then they are infringing your patents if you have patents. So I'm hoping that this is like a defensive action and they're not going to just turn around and say, gee, you know what vendor so-and-so who, you know, is building something or like there's a lot of projects to bring like Swift onto Google's Fuchsia or onto Android and other platforms. I'm hoping they don't start going after those people. I'm hoping this is just purely a shady patent lawyer who also invests in apps that are written or compiled into Swift. Sue's Apple. Apple could say, well, great, you are now owe us a million dollars. Yeah, right. And I, that I, is, that's a good yeah. point. There is That is a big component, the, uh, the patent grant, the, the patent controls to try to prevent lawsuits that is part of the Apache license. It is, it, it is, it, I think it just kind of shows some of the difference between 
different ways that open source communities are structured because you have some that are sort of more organic, maybe like Python, uh, and then you have stuff like Swift where, yes, it is open source, but it is there's there's one giant copyright owner and contributor standing there as an elephant in the room. And sometimes there can be a little friction between normal sort of open source concerns and the concerns of a giant company that does have a lot of liability out there, especially when people like Oracle exist. Can I put on my uh, Chris Fisher tinfoil hat for a moment, oh, though? please do. So I do not believe in software patents, but let's just like say, let's just say we have a friend named Jimbo that does. And he invents some crazy new whatever, right, way to, way to program. Apple then infringes his patent, and he also happens to be like a Swift consultant of some kind. He sues them for patent infringement. Couldn't they just turn around and say, okay, well... Every time you've used Swift, you have infringed our patent too. So, sorry, not sorry. You mean meaning he? You mean with or without the current licensing? So, I mean, I mean, with the current licensing, assuming these patents aren't struck down, right? Couldn't this also be used as a way for Apple to basically be able to use, or under the threat of filing a patent infringement lawsuit for the use of Swift? any smaller firm or any small research lab's patents if that research lab or firm also uses Swift. When I say, of course, it doesn't grant them the legal right, but the reality of a small research lab, you know, going up against Apple is, is not right. That that is a huge problem with the whole structure of this is that not all, uh, you know, not all legal bills are created equal or people have the equal ability to pay those. And actually I was going to ask you a a similar question, which is yeah, exactly how confident does this make you feel using Swift? Obviously sometimes you don't have a choice or it's the right thing to use regardless of all these concerns, but just from the the high level perspective, it does. I mean, it it, it might be a little bit of a question mark. I mean, it, it doesn't affect me because I don't file software patents, but if I did, yeah, then definitely. And, and and one thing to keep in mind, too, the way the license, and again, not an attorney, but my understanding of the license is that it doesn't, it doesn't just work against software patents. So if you patent some hardware design and you also use Swift, in theory, now I doubt Apple would ever do this, but in theory, they, they could have a lot of leverage over you. Right. I mean, um, they could publicly declare at any point that future contributions are no longer under that license. They could change a whole bunch of options and oh, then sure. pursue other patent claims. And as you say, they just have more lawyers than just about anyone else, right? You have enough. They have enough cash on hand to pay lawyers for uh, several millennia. Yeah, that's that's very sad. Yeah, it sure is. Oh, Swift. See, so that's one of the things. Like, Swift is an interesting language, and there is a lot of support, or at least interest, in trying to port it to other platforms. It has a good has a good runtime story. It has it has nice ergonomics. It has a big company backing behind it, so you know it'll be supported and actually developed at least for a little while. So it's a shame that uh, it could be so complicated sometimes. It also seems like one of those languages that maybe someday you might see running on WebAssembly. Ooh, no. Yeah, so what is what are your general thoughts on WebAssembly before we dive into this? Yeah, I mean maybe we should um maybe we should break down a little bit of, you know, what's going on with WebAssembly, why are we talking about it at all? Uh you you started off saying like we should we should chat about WebAssembly. I know you saw some tweets, but before that, let's just break it down. And really, I mean, it's it's an assembly a set of assembly instructions targeted 
at the web, right? You'd see this embedded right. in web browsers, um, and you'd have a way to use it as a compilation target as as a different sort of architecture with some sandboxing and restraints built into the platform so that you, you know, obviously if it's running on, a, on an end user's machine, you have to have some security concerns. Just a few. Do you feel, well, are you using WebAssembly at all? I've played with it, you know, just like your little bit of Hello Worlds and, and trying to get something built. But right. but no, it's not immediately useful to me. I'm reasonably happy with JavaScript as a compilation target. But, right. yeah, but I, can see, I can see why. So what strikes me as a similarity is we were talking about earlier in the show Rust as an augmentation to Ruby. And, and Ruby can be nice. There's a lot of development ergonomics. The whole language is focused on, you know, making developers happy and it can be very pleasant to use. There's a lot of libraries. But sometimes you need a little bit of a speed boost. You need more efficiency. And that's where implementing something in a language like Rust or something a little more, a little lower level can be nice. And, and I see that as a way, some way that, that WebAssembly will be used as to augment things. You might still end up writing a large JavaScript application, but for parts that are just twiddling bits, not necessarily handling complicated, you know, complicated information processing, but parts that are mechanical, parts that are just, you know, yeah. cu- calculating vector instructions, trying to render graphics, wh- whatever, something you need speed, you really fast and efficient, then you can use whatever compilation trigger. To- then you can use whatever language you want. And then if you right. have WebAssembly as an output, ship it to the browser. So another use I have seen for it, and I, I agree with everything you just said, by the way, I think. In, in fact, the performance stuff, I think, is going to be the most common. Are you familiar at all? And I'm, I'm dating myself now. And it's an Objective-C thing. So I'm sure you don't have never touched it. I'm sure if you saw it, you'd run. It's a project called Cappuccino. And I'm currently trying to load the projects.org website. It seems like they may have... a gone to that github repository in the sky oh that's what it was yeah it's a shame what it was was an objective c web development framework that let you use uh xcode's interface builder to like lay out your layouts and everything and code an objective c the idea being you could use desktop quality uh quote-unquote quality layout tools instead of having to write nasty html and css actually there's a modern project just like it um we had them on the show platform uno which is the same thing oh right the xaml with xaml and c sharp and what they're doing is they compile into WebAssembly. and there's another one that i actually sponsor that i keep forgetting that i sponsor avalonia um i know they are basically doing the same thing and planning to go further into WebAssembly. same idea you can use xaml and c sharp and f sharp and uh you would be again you'd if you're a .NET developer, you'd be coding in the tools that you have come to know and loathe. Um, but when you compile, you're going to compile into WebAssembly. Uh, for those interested, a chat with Uno, go to Radio 317. I have no idea how you did that so fast. That, I'm impressed, Wes. You know what? Maybe Chris could just stay wherever he is. Let's just let's just leave him. Oh, you flatter me, sir. <laughs> um. Is that crazy? I mean, not not the Chris thing, but is is it crazy for people to want this? Because I have to be honest, there was a day when like Cappuccino, the Objective C um, interface builder project, looked really attractive to me. No, and I mean, I think it makes sense in the same context that you've seen JavaScript be, you know, really just kind of become, at least in some circles, just a compilation target in its own. Right? You're you're writing TypeScript, or at least using Babel in your in yeah. your pipeline. So it's not like you're maybe you're looking at the, the generated JavaScript, but if you are, it's probably because of some unfortunate reason or weird bug that somehow your source maps aren't covering. 
Or you fundamentally don't understand TypeScript like I did in the beginning. <laughs> yes, right. Or, or, or lots of reasons. <laughs> I mean, it, one of the other interesting things is uh, JavaScript itself can compile into WebAssembly. So if you're just hot for the ECMA 2019 that's coming out. Right. You could use that as a way to uh, bootstrap yourself sure up and, and try things out. Yeah, yeah, and that's where it's, you know, it. What it seems like is that for a lot of things like TypeScript, right, which is obviously a superset of JavaScript, or I, I use ClojureScript a, a fair amount, and that's a sort of similar thing, it ends up mapping really well. So in the back end of the compiler, like a, a ClojureScript function fundamentally maps to a JavaScript function because they're both kind of higher level languages, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a GC involved. They have similar notions of sort of dynamic types and the, the basic sort of data structures involved. That is not true for Rust. And so you, while you can use JavaScript as an arbitrary Turing complete bottom implementation to target, it just doesn't have kind of the right primitives to write really good code that maps more to lower level ideas and algorithms. Yeah, it, it, it seems interesting. And just uh, kind of going off the chat, Circus Freak, you guys have amazing names in the chat, by the way. Oh, yeah, I love it. I read it in the chat is, yeah. It depends, right? So the question is, isn't uh, the performance of WebAssembly the same as JavaScript? That is one of those questions that is super simple to say, and the answer would take another 100 episodes. Basically, it depends on the browser vendor. And I'll give you a great example. Google Chrome on most platforms that aren't... I forgot which one is slower, but there's some issue. I think it's, I think it's actually macOS. Uh, but don't quote me on that last part implement WebAssembly in a way where it tends to be faster. In fact, sometimes it will like compile JavaScript into WebAssembly. Safari is Safari. What, what can we say about Safari? Edge is dead, but I, I do you know, Wes, if Mozilla, if Firefox actually implements it yet? Yeah, I, think I, they believe, do, right? I believe so. Yeah. Because they've, so they've been involved because they were one of the big proponents of ASMJS before WebAssembly right, really, right. really got going. Blue. It took over, right? So this is this is a situation of it's going to depend on the browser because the browser's engine is ultimately what what right runs the quote unquote assembly language, the web assembly. Right. And right we now, saw that I, we saw that with JavaScript too for a long time. V eight was exactly. just like dominant, and now you know Spider Monkey and others have caught up so that we have a generally fast JavaScript environment. Right, and I think right now even straight JavaScript DOM performance, uh, I'm pretty sure Chrome is like kicking the shit out of everybody else. If you're if you actually care about performance, um, and you like giving Google all your information, it also seems like one of the big bottlenecks that has been only relatively recently worked through is you know going through the translation between JavaScript and WebAssembly. Um, so you right you might be yeah. writing you might be writing a game that just like does everything in WebAssembly, but I think a lot of people end up just needing to pass data structures back and forth so that you can do some performance optimized thing in WebAssembly and then maybe do some higher level DOM re-rendering in JavaScript that you already have a nice library for. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the case. I mean, I'm I'm hoping for a future, um, and, and we'll get to the con case pretty soon, but I'm hoping for a future where we can just compile libraries to WebAssembly and like pull them in via various package managers and be very happy. Um, something a bit maybe more sophisticated or less uh, of a hassle to use at scale than NPM. But... I'm thinking more like a Cocoa Pods or a Ruby Gem style situation, which I know NPM is very similar. But if these were compiled, quote unquote, binary WebAssembly, I'm using air quotes, binary WebAssembly targets, 
that would be pretty good. And if you if you've ever developed iOS, I'm talk- so what I'm basically saying is static libraries, right? The equivalent of a .a file you might pull down from CocoaPods. Would you I compare think- that to like a like an like an ahead of time compiled jar that just has just has bytecode? That's exactly what it. Yeah, a jar is actually probably a better better analogy because it's 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 definitely not going to be like a static library, right? It's going to be well, jars are static, but you know what I mean. It's right. Yes. Yeah. Gradle. Give me Gradle. Give me Gradle <laughs> or give me death. Um, so you know, it's our love of WebAssembly is not universal. No, of course not. That's not you know, nothing's ever so simple in our real world, case. Mike. So uh, DHH, uh, David, I can't say his full name. So the guy who created uh, Rails says, quote, on Twitter, treating the web as a compile target washes away much of what's so special about it. Reducing the web to just another closed platform like Windows or iOS is to be blind to its truly unique shape and promise. Let's cherish what made the web special, not pave over it. What's your reaction? You know, I was thinking about this a lot yesterday, this morning. There is, and and, and it kind of comes up in multiple contexts. It kind of made me think of the debate when Systemd was first sort of being introduced. And if you are experienced with Inix scripts, having them be bash meant you could just open them up, right? You didn't have to go find the source somewhere. You didn't have to go, especially if it's it's not on GitHub, it's probably in whatever version, the bizarre repo that Ubuntu has and find the right version that actually shipped that you've installed through dpackage. Or it's a bash script that you open up in, in VI and you can edit and tweak and reboot and test immediately. And so there is that. Like I was I was doing a little automation work trying to automate a site that uh, doesn't have an API, at least not yet. So I was kind of you know mechanized and, and automating some web forms. There was a little bit of JavaScript to, to handle some fancy uploading stuff. But it wasn't transpiled. It wasn't some fancy framework. It was just good old jQuery, right? I've, I've, everyone, basically everyone who's done web development over the past 10 years had to use nothing jQuery at some with, point. No. Nothing wrong with the dollar sign, man. No, not at all. And for the right kind of stuff where you don't, you're not writing you know, an SPA, then jQuery can really... And in this case, it was. It was used simply. And I could have reverse engineered everything I needed to know just from like looking at the web requests and, and you know, working backwards. But I didn't have to because I could just read the JavaScript. So I was able to just copy the, you know, the copy the post that they were doing that way without having to decode anything, without having to re- go look at all the how the form got encoded. That was really handy and it was a sort of like immediate ease of understanding and tweaking and playing with that you don't get when you end up with a giant minimized JavaScript blog or in the case of WebAssembly a binary AST. Right. But but, it, but so the other the flip side of that I don't know that WebAssembly, what does it really change? I mean, maybe a binary is even a little bit more hard to yeah. hard to introspect, but we're already at a point where most websites that you get the minimized JavaScript for, even if you oh, use legible. some of the, yeah, right, you can use some clever right. tooling to expand it and make it readable, but you don't get real variable names, so you're kind of, you're, you're left you trying to guess. Logic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of feel like, like with anything else, I could definitely see how people could think this is kind of closing up uh the web quote-unquote as a platform but you know i look at the advantages of WebAssembly, being able to code in whatever language uh you know slash stack that i want to now granted in my case i would still just use javascript but i think you and i are in some way a bad case for this because you know i run into windows guys all the time who like you know i say give me great great old they say xaml or death right they just want to lay everything out on xaml 
that's what they want. Right. That's what they know. That's not what they are familiar right. with. Yeah, of course. And like you show them CSS and they cry. So, well, that's, that can happen to anyone. Well, <laughs> and if you've ever looked at my CSS, uh, it, it doesn't seem, it seems like there are two main advantages here, right? We've talked about the performance advantages and also the, the freedom to choose your own stack. I, I, I kind of think it's, the the good outweighs the bad, especially as you're saying, giving that all these big sites minimize the crap out of their JavaScript anyway. Um, and anything that's proprietary, a lot of people are obfuscating. Right. So yes. And and but I, I mean I can I can certainly appreciate the sentiment because you know, we already have stuff like the the various DRM solutions that get rolled up in, in Chrome and other browsers. It is we are we have already moved away from a web now not necessarily everywhere and maybe maybe that's where some of the concern is that you know this will just increase with WebAssembly. but we're already in a web where you can't really fully introspect everything that's running in your browser you don't really have entire control like you would like to think yeah and no one yeah. looks at I the mean, even if you can look at the javascript no one does no one does right and everybody's pulling in the same you know react or view or whatever anyway when they're coding in javascript so you know, how many times are you implementing or building upon Angular, for example? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and DHH has a follow-on tweet. Um, you know, WebAssembly is exciting in a lot of ways. This isn't one of them. Hopefully, we'll keep HTML, CSS, JS readable. And he, in that, he's replying to someone who mentions that, you know, we've seen Java applets, which I used to write, don't judge me, Ooh, yeah. ActiveX, Shockwave, and Flash, all of these fall down, which is true, right? There have been many, many attempts to do this kind of thing. I would argue though. Silverlight. Oh, I forgot about Silverlight crap. Everyone um, did. Yeah, yeah. That's even Microsoft. So I, I don't think WebAssembly is going to go down like that just because it's an open source kind of, you know, Linux. I know it's not Linux, but like open source. I want to use the word standard, right? Where Flash was proprietary, Java applets were frankly satanic and silverlight was just basically made for netflix right. i'm joking yeah i so you, right. you, you might you might be running a proprietary something that is has a proprietary license and you don't get to see the source for but you're right. running it on an open source system or at least an open source standard right exactly and also you know who's backing WebAssembly now mozilla google um basically every other big company that i can think of I'm not even, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure of any, I'm not sure of any of the big browser vendors with the exception of maybe Apple. I don't think Apple actually has any dog in this fight that isn't backing WebAssembly and actively contributing to this standard. So it seems like the, uh, you know, the big platforms in the market have decided that it's the way to go. Right. And at some point, I mean, it's good. So kind of maybe, maybe if I'm taking you right it's going to happen. We just have to, We now we kind of have to, the, the debate has moved on from should we do this or not? And it is happening. How do we, how do we deal with it? Yeah. I, th- I think the, the question becomes, um, and, the, and now we're getting deep into like front end web development hell, but at what point does quote unquote, the interface or the API of WebAssembly, which I know is a gross oversimplification diverge or become a competitor to programming directly to the DOM? Right now, there's no friction there that I'm aware of. I mean, it's it's just like, you know, you it just compiled. I could see a world where particularly big tech companies decide to put out like proprietary frameworks or 
you know, you, you get into the IE6 world of like, could Google, for instance, decide that they want to have a special like API hook that you can call from WebAssembly that does something cool in Chrome that you can't do in Firefox or, or I guess they care more about Safari. Right. But couldn't they do that in JavaScript they could, today? They I mean, can do V8 that right now. That. Exactly. It's like a great example. Firef- I always find, because I tend to use Firefox and I use the Firefox developer edition for testing. Oh, yeah. Right. Firefox always implements things basically to the letter of the standard. Google's like, meh, <laughs> we're going to do it the way we think it should have been done. And Apple's just, I don't know what the hell's going on over there. Right. You know, that is a good point because you do think, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of stuff like the web audio standard, but you, you exactly. often see things in Chrome that like people end up even using enough to make web apps. And then you just have these web apps that aren't really web apps because they're Chrome apps for the non-standard API. Sort of like the one we used to make the show? Sort of like the one we used to make... I wasn't going to mention that, but yes. Uh-huh. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. It, it's the only time I launch Chrome, other than obviously browser testing. Okay, so here's another... So you mentioned to me before we started the show that you're you're running Linux today. We're, this, is a, this is a whole Linux-powered coder whole radio. Linux. Pretty cool. Yep. One, of the, one of the things that might be more possible is shipping proprietary applications to the browser with WebAssembly. Like, uh, I know the people behind AutoCAD have been experimenting with that. And in 2018, we saw Unity release WebAssembly as a compilation target. So suddenly you might get in-browser games that are actually decent or some of your favorite tools running in the browser. And while, yes, that might be still proprietary, that's not great for the open web, but as a Linux user, that might be the difference of me having to have a Windows VM or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fine. I'm obviously not, you know, I'm not a total freedom penguin. But I could also see the argument that that effectively becomes a form of, I won't say DRM, but, you know, again, another form of kind of proprietary protection. But again, wouldn't you rather be able to run things in the open platform of the browser instead of having to install, like you said, a Windows 10 VM? Yes, yes, and I, I would. And for devs, I I can't imagine like people want to write things to the Windows API anymore. Um, even if it is UWP, which is actually a pretty nice API. I mean, I think that's why Platform Uno and Avalonia are getting so popular because there's a whole pile of people with uh, C Sharp, .NET, maybe UWP, WPF skills that want to come over into other platforms, right? So they want to ship an app and run it on Windows, Mac, Linux. And in the case of Uno, and I think Avalonia is there soon, the web. I, I'm, I'm kind of cool with that. Yeah. No, I see what you mean. Hmm. That's, that is interesting. I also noticed that there's like, there's been some, some efforts made to have WebAssembly as something of a more general runtime, right? When you get in this world sure. where suddenly a whole bunch of tools can output to it, well, yeah, it, it can ship in the browser, but kind of like kind of like with Node, where V8 was ripped out of the browser and you know used to great effect on its own, whether you like Node or not. I the same thing can be happen with 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 Wasm, right? And so you can end up yeah. with like, oh, well, I compiled Nginx to run in in WebAssembly on top of WebAssembly, and now instead of having to install it or compile it for your architecture, well, here's a binary blob that you can run as long as you have something that translates it to native right. instructions. So so Electron, right? So Microsoft bought GitHub, who created and owns Electron. Can't you see a world where Microsoft changes Electron to not just be like an instance of Chrome, but to be its own just, uh, you know, WASM, if I can 
try to use that runtime. Oh, interesting. Some optimizations, but Optimization, that are still linked yeah. enough so that maybe me that as the developer doesn't have to care too much, but gets some nice benefits and, and well, and the hope being that complain. like, right. And that Slack doesn't like throw up on your computer all the time. So, Oh yes, it does. It does do that. It does seem like Electron got lots of stuff, right? Where you have this, the developer experience is clearly something people are interested in, but just, you just see so many apps written for it. Right. But the, yeah, I don't the think, experience yeah. for the end user leaves a lot to be desired. And I saw I saw a couple of things like some interesting an interesting electron inter- alternative based on Reason and OCaml that offered a sort of development environment with some of the, the JavaScript style feedbacks and a very similar API, but that could ultimately compile down to native code. So it seems like a lot of people are interested in exploring that space. It does. Now let me ask you a question. On what operating system might you run a lot of electron apps? Well, I think I would probably run those on Linux. Would you make that choice? Yeah. Would you choose Linux? See, I'm trying to say, yeah. I, you know, I think I would. Well, if I wanted to choose Linux, where could I go? Oh, you know, there's been a lot of good options to, to where you could go, but don't, there's also a lot of bad options. So don't go somewhere like DistroWatch. No, that's not, that's not, that, oh. that can't be right. No, don't go there. You could go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, but that's not quite specific enough. Really? You should go check out the brand new show, Choose Linux, over at ChooseLinux.show. ChooseLinux.show slash one if you just want to start out with the very first episode. It's brand new. Expect a second episode coming out before too long. It'll be every other week. You can join Jason and Joe to find out Jason's new adventures in the world of Linux and Joe's realistic take on it. Sounds amazing. Oh, it is. Of course, head on over to Coder.show if you want to get the whole backlog all the episodes, as many as you could want. Really, there's no excuse. All the updates from Mike, all the magic and mispronunciations from Chris, and occasionally I pop in there. Plus, there's a bunch of other great Jupiter Broadcasting shows over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can find me over on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. And of course, Mike, you're there too. At Jiminuko on Twitter. Beautiful. Thank you all so much for joining us. We've got we've got a live stream. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to find out when we're going to do that. It's usually right about noon Pacific time on Monday. You can try to catch us there. We've got a great IRC room. And don't forget, coder.show slash contact to find all the ways to get in touch or head on over to our subreddit. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.